The lesson today is God's presence in all places. We've seen the devastating effect of sin and judgment in the destruction the Lord brought upon Judah and Jerusalem. He used the Babylonians to crush his own temple, conquer his own people, and to take many of them captive into exile. It would have been easy for the exiles to see themselves in a foreign land, under a foreign king and surrounded by foreign gods, and believe that God was no longer with them. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. God is present everywhere. God hears, He cares for, and He promises to dwell with His people. God is good. We see this characteristic of God in His promise to dwell with His people. First in the tabernacle, next in the temple, and then in the temple of our bodies in churches. From the promise of God to dwell with His people, there are so many realities that the people of God get to live in. One of those is the reality that God's presence ensures that He will hear us when we pray. Most notably, seen in His gracious forgiveness of our sin, when we confess it and cry out to Him for salvation. The first point is that God is present to hear from His people. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27-30. through 30. But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition. Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day, toward the place where you said, My name will be there, and so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petition of your servant and your people, Israel, which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. Okay, we as Christians believe that God is omnipresent. God's omnipresence refers to His presence in all time and all places simultaneously. Because God exists apart from and outside of time and space, He's not limited by our human constraints. He's present with us wherever we are and sees all that occurs. Nothing escapes God's attention. God's omnipresence is a deterrent for sin and a source of great comfort and hope for all believers. 1 Kings chapter 8 is the completion of of arguably the most important thing that Solomon did during his reign as king of Israel to build God's temple. This was going to be the permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant. The temple would come to represent the presence of God in a very special way for Israel and for the rest of the world. But Solomon began this part of his prayer with a very important rhetorical question. Is God really going to live in this temple on earth? What he said next is really important in being able to understand and answer the question. God's presence can't be contained by all heaven. 
and God certainly wasn't going to make his home in this comparatively small temple that Solomon had built. And yet, that's exactly what God did. Now, verse 27 points not only to the reality of Israel at the time, but also to the future hope of the world. God is omnipresent, which means that he is present at all times and in all places. God isn't limited to the constraints of time and space like we are. Nowhere can anyone hide from God. God sees everything that we do, which should help us to flee temptation and to avoid sin. God's omnipresence should also be a source of hope for believers, as it means that he is always with us and he always hears us. It is true that God can't be contained in heaven or on earth, yet God's manifest presence can be seen in specific moments in time and space. In each person of the triune, God has manifested his presence to his people. For example, the Father in the burning bush the Spirit at Pentecost, and the Son in Jesus Christ. In the advent of Jesus, not only did the person and work of Christ mean that God dwelled on earth, it also meant that he was contained in an earthly body. All the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. This means that in the advent of Jesus, God was fully present with his people to save his people. Furthermore, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we've not only been saved from our sin, but we've also become the very temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. Not only does verse 27 cause us to reckon with Jesus' first coming, it also makes us consider his second coming. One day, Jesus is going to make his permanent dwelling place with humanity, and he's going to make all things new. While Solomon's temple was a place where God's manifest presence dwelled, it was only a shade or a shadow of what was to come in Jesus' first and second comings. The next part of Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple was an incredibly humble request for God not only to make his dwelling with his people, but also to hear his people. And taking it a step further, Solomon asked God to forgive his people of their sin when they prayed toward the temple. The temple was beautifully and intricately designed, but by itself it wasn't special. What made the temple special was the fact that God said his name would be there. So in essence, God's people in praying in the direction of the temple, we're praying in God's name by which all of God's promises are sure. These verses point us to two of the greatest realities that God's people get to live in. One, God hears his people. Two, God forgives his people for their sin. Because God is omnipresent in all places at all times, His people can rest assured that he hears them. And because God has placed the sin of his people on his son, Jesus Christ, they can rest assured that God has forgiven them of their sin. God loved us so much that he sacrificed greatly to save us. The Father sent the Son to earth 
in the form of a man, that he might willingly die the death that all sinful human beings deserve to die. That is a God who can be trusted and who is also worth following. God's presence to hear his people helps us to know that he forgives our sin because he cares for us in his presence. Caring for someone is difficult if you're far away, but because God is omnipresent, we know he is right here with us, caring for our needs, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. The second point today is that God is present to care for his people. We find this in Psalm chapter 33, verses 13 through 19. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in the famine. Psalm 33 is an incredible psalm about the praiseworthiness of God as the creator and sustainer of all things. Throughout this psalm, we see God's faithfulness and love for his people how he is trustworthy, and his love is unfailing, how his plans are sure, and how he has chosen a people. In verses 13 through 15, the repetition of the word all is a reference to the omnipresence of God. As we discussed in the previous point, the omnipresence of God refers to his presence in all time and all places simultaneously. These verses highlight the truth that even though God exists outside of time and space, He is also present with us where we are now. God is enthroned above all, and He sees all of humankind, and He sees all of the works of humanity. Now, verse 15 says that God considers all their works. This is really important because it shows us that God isn't just enthroned above us watching us. No, God is watching and judging. He is judging righteously and fairly. God judges all people based on the same standard, His holiness. Unfortunately, none of us has the ability to meet that standard, and God is keenly aware of that because He not only knows what's in our hearts, but He also knit our hearts together. God judges because He cares about His holiness and about His people. As the Lord looks at our works and deeds, he sees how we sometimes think that we can care for ourselves on our own, even save ourselves from all the harm and consequences by trusting in our mortal bodies. But, verses 16 and 17 here beg the question, can you truly trust in your own might and power? Leaders with their armies can't save. Warriors with all their strength can't deliver. There is no hope in human effort for safety because reliance on human power and effort is insufficient for salvation. The words large and great in these verses ironically emphasize the weakness of human effort and the fact that even the greatest person is an ant compared to God. 
In verses 16 and 17, in isolation from the rest of this psalm, or even the rest of Scripture, it would spell doom for all mankind. We are helpless, and sometimes we don't even know it. But these verses set up what we need to see in verses 18 and 19, where salvation can only be found in trusting God. A salvation that is only possible because of the promise of His Son, Jesus. Since God sees all and he judges the hearts of all people, and remember, none of us has the ability to save ourselves, especially from God's judgment, that what is the ho- then what is the hope for human beings? The hope for humanity is that God gives special attention to those who fear him. Yes, he sees all, but those who fear him are his people, and he acts on their behalf. The words fear in verse 18 doesn't mean terror. In the context of verses 13 to 19, it means an attitude of dependence that leads to trust. The attitude of dependence and the action of the trust leads to what we see in verse 19, rescue and provision. In other words, God's salvation. On this side of the cross, the fear and trust that God calls for is ultimately in Jesus Christ. But Psalm 33, 18, and 19 points to the coming Messiah, who is the Son of God. One day the Son would take on the form of a man and do what human beings and all their strength could never do for themselves. He would lay down his perfect life in death on the cross to save humankind from sin and death because he truly cares for his people. But only those who trust in Jesus for salvation with an attitude of dependence that leads to trust will be saved. Jesus' disciples loved their teacher and marveled in fear at his person and power. And through his resurrection from the dead, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that he cared for them and purchased their salvation that could never be lost. One day, Jesus will come again, and he will judge all people by his holy standard. Only those who trust in him as their Savior and King will stand and be delivered from death. We are completely dependent on God, but God both hears us and forgives our sin. God's promise, listening, and forgiveness find their fulfillment ultimately in His promise to send a Savior into the world to save us from our sin. Today's third point is God is present to dwell with His people. We find this in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Now, King Ahaz was a wicked king of Judah 
who practiced child sacrifice and idol worship. He became the king at the age of 20 and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. When confronted with the threat of Assyria, resident of Aram, Syria made a treaty with Pekah of Israel and wanted Ahaz to join them. He refused and they waged war on Judah. Ahaz then sought an alliance with Assyria instead of listening to Isaiah and going to the Lord. He even gave God gold and silver from God's temple as a tribute to Assyria. Ahaz tried to use God's word to disobey him, mentioning the law from Moses that you should not test God as you tested him at Massa. At Massa meaning test. The Israelites complained about not having water, testing the Lord as, as if he weren't with them after he led them out of Egypt. But in God's grace, he allowed them to have water by Moses striking the rock at Horeb. The entirety of Isaiah chapter 7 is almost like an illustration of what we just saw in Psalm 33. God really is present to dwell with his people, even when his people refuse to trust in him. Not in spite of his people's lack of trust, but because God cares about his promises. In Isaiah 7, King Ahaz of Judah had enemies knocking at the door, wanting to fight. Rezin from Aram, Syria, and Pekah from Israel. This seemed like an impossible situation to endure. Somewhat similar to what we read a few lessons ago with Daniel and his three friends. But the key difference between Ahaz and Daniel with his friends was that Ahaz didn't have the same resolve they did, which is terrifying, seeing as he was the king of Judah. But God had already promised to protect Ahaz if he would simply put his trust in the Lord. To encourage Ahaz, even though he was a fearless king, God commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign that God was powerful and faithful enough to contend for his people. And in this command, God gave Ahaz a blank check to ask for whatever sign he wanted. Ahaz, however, refused by presenting a false humanity before God's prophet. It is true that God commanded his people not to put him to the test, but here, God was not only offering to give Ahaz a sign, he was commanding him to ask for one. Ahaz was depending on his own feeble strength to defend Judah, as opposed to depending upon God. But because of God's goodness, the Lord tried to help Ahaz in strengthening his faith by offering to give him a sign. The refusal of that gift was too much for Isaiah as well as God. We can take this as a warning for ourselves not to depend on our own strength instead of God's. And as we are about to see in verse 13, as Isaiah rebuked Ahaz, God will do what he set out to do. But the circumstances will always be better if we're with him rather than not. In verse 13, Isaiah rebuked Ahaz. But not just because of Ahaz's false religious attitude and not doing what God had commanded him to do. This rebuke was offered because of Ahaz's lack of trust in God and his lack of willingness to even try to trust in God. Again, this resolve to do things in his own strength should have been terrifying for the people of Judah. 
Their God appointed king in the line of David, who had been tasked with fighting on their behalf, was refusing to trust the God who held every part of the nation together. Despite Ahaz's refusal to trust God in verse 14, God told him through Isaiah that he would give him a sign anyway. The sign that a child would be born of a virgin. The Hebrew word for virgin here in context could mean virgin or young woman. This is important to note because this sign was more than likely initially fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 8 verses 1 through 10 through the normal birth of a son of Isaiah. But ultimately, this sign pointed to the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus. In Ahaz's day, God was promising to protect not only Judah, but also his Davidic kingly line because God had promised to send a Savior through that same line. In our day, we read this prophetic sign as a promise for the world. God has sent the Savior of the world in the line of David, the Son of God, Jesus, Emmanuel, God forever with us. The significance of this prophecy and its fulfillment is that it points to the nature of our Savior, Jesus being born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, means that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. As both the Son of God and the Son of the Virgin Mary, Jesus would be able to live the life we were supposed to live, die the death we should have died, and then rise from the grave in anticipation of our future glorification. In the birth of Jesus prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, lies the hope of all humanity, a God who loves his people enough to die for them and who is raised to life to dwell with them forever. I want to close with a voice from the church from church history. Charles Spurgeon, who lived from 1834 to 1892, said, Were it an angel that had interposed, we might have some fears. Were it a mere man, we might go beyond fear and sit down in despair. But if it be God with us, and God has actually taken manhood into union with himself, Then let us ring the bells of heaven and be glad. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and just thank you for this gift of Jesus Christ who you sent to us and that we celebrate during this Advent season. And Lord, I just ask you to be with those today who are alone and feel like you've that there's no one with them. Remind them, Heavenly Father, that you are with them and just surround them with your love and grace and mercy and send your servants to them to lift them up. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are sick and hurting, that you would just touch them and heal them with your almighty power. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with all of us through this coming week and send the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.